You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. This is our fifth week in the Gospel of John and the feeding of the 5,000, as the story is called. But as you know so far, the feeding of the 5,000 was only the beginning of the story, and it's really a part of a much larger emphasis in John chapter 6, namely that Jesus is the bread of life and the very substance of the new Passover. So far, it's been pretty much about receiving the bread of life as sustenance. And I would say that that is a valid understanding of John chapter 6, that Jesus is our sustenance, that He is Our very life, He is our spiritual nourishment. Jesus is the very bread by which we live spiritually. In Exodus, the people were hungry and God fed them. And so in the same way, Jesus is the bread of life provided from heaven by God. But Jesus takes that necessary understanding to its necessary end. We can't just stop there if we're to really believe what Jesus says about being the bread of life. If you're going to take the illustration, the bread of life, to the fullest sense of its meaning, then we must consider both what it makes Jesus to be as well as what it makes us to receive. What does it mean for Jesus to be the bread of life? We've answered that question for the most part. The question now is, What does it mean to receive the bread of life? Well, Jesus' claims about being sent from heaven are hard enough for these Jews to take. They're not over the edge already. They're fixing to be over the edge. (laughs) When Jesus makes some really weird statements to them, and it's going to drive them right into the point of arguing against or uh, uh, among one another, Uh, about who Jesus is and what he's saying to them. They start disputing here in our passage. And all of the disputing comes from one primary phrase that Jesus used at the end of the passage last week that I told you was transitional. So up until this point, let me just kind of remind you. Verse 47, Jesus is talking about eternal life. 48, he is the bread of life. Verse 51, eat of this bread and you're not going to die. Or verse 50, rather. Verse 51. I am the living bread. He talks about at the end of verse 51, living forever. It's all about life, all about having life and living eternally. But here at the end of our passage, at the tail end of verse 51, he says that the bread that I will give you for the life of the world, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now that statement stops them in their tracks. Jesus, what do you what do you mean your flesh? That's part of what we've not considered, isn't it? What does it mean to receive this bread? In order to receive this bread, you must receive his flesh. 
Well, that picture seems to have more to do with death than it does life, doesn't it? And so again, the message is not received very well. And at this point, they are incredibly offended and they start arguing among themselves there at the beginning in verse 52. And so what I want us to do is to consider this statement together and its expansion here in our passage. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. As we look to John chapter 6, beginning in verse 52. The Bible says the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray together. Jesus, these are incredibly interesting words. That you would speak in this way boggles our mind, and especially to us in Western thought, it is even more difficult to see what it is that you're saying to the Eastern world, to the Jews Those who would have understood what's going on around them and all of the history of your words. So, God, I pray that you would help us now. That you would bring us to this place where we see from your word what you are saying with great clarity and with great power. That your Holy Spirit would impress it upon our hearts this morning. And that, God, we as your people would believe what it is that your word says. And as a result... I pray that if there is someone here this morning who has never trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that today this would be the day of their salvation. That they would submit their lives to your will and to your rule and your reign. That they would believe your gospel. That Jesus, you would cause them to be born again by your Spirit. And that today they would live forever in paradise with you because of trusting in Christ. And remind us as your church, remind us what it means to eat and to drink from your body and your blood. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I want to give you the passage or the, the truth of this passage right up front because it's going to take a little digging to get there and a little background work to get there. The the message itself is pretty simple from John chapter 6, and yet without the background, it's, it's pretty difficult for us to understand what Jesus is saying, but it's a message that is both shocking and convicting to both the New Testament world, and it will be shocking and convicting in our day. Here it is. Those who receive the death of Jesus 
receive eternal life. It's fairly straightforward, fairly simple to understand. Those who receive the death of Jesus receive eternal life. What does it mean and why is it shocking and convicting? Well, in the New Testament world, the Messiah was coming and he was going to be the conquering king, the one who would save his people from death and provide life. Well, that message, the fact that Jesus is going to die, that message flies in the face of everything that they believe the Messiah to be. All that he was going to be, that was a shocking message and even offensive. You cannot kill the king. To talk about death doesn't make sense in a Jewish worldview. The same is sadly true, though, among the culture today. We've all come up with our basic assumptions about Jesus, and those basic assumptions have led many to shallow understandings of what it means to be a a Christian. Understandings that require very little commitment. Understandings that are predominantly about us and how to make us a better, a better me, a better version of myself. But this is not the biblical Jesus. The real message of Jesus is both shocking and convicting and even offensive, especially to a self-idolizing culture. So the message of Jesus is that those who receive the death of Jesus, those who receive my death will receive eternal Life. Well, you've already seen that the theme of this chapter is the new Passover. What we can't miss is that Jesus is clearly teaching that the new is better than the old. The new is better than the old. Something new and better has come. And you see it here in the text over and over again. Go back with me to verse 32. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Something better than what Moses gave is here. Something God is giving is better than what Moses gave. Verse 48, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. The old bread did not produce lasting life. Only Jesus can produce lasting life. And in this case, it is everlasting life. You will never die. It's better than the old. And then right here in our text this morning, verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus is saying that what I'm providing to you is better than what was provided to you before. The old way was provided, but it was incomplete. It was imperfect. It was unable to sustain life, unable to ultimately save. What Jesus provides is able to save, able to sustain life. It is able to make someone live forever. Jesus is saying what I'm providing is better. But this is where Jesus really makes the whole thing kind of weird. (laughs) I mean, it's weird to talk in this way. Nobody really talks in this way. He says in verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And what is the bread? The offensive statement is the bread that I will give you for the life of the world is my flesh. It's my flesh. And the Jews begin arguing among themselves. What in the world is Jesus saying? 
And they ask the question, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's almost as if they bounce this back and forth for a little bit. And the only question they can come up with is, how are you going to give us your flesh? That doesn't make any sense at all. So Jesus goes on to further explain. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Well, that's not a picture of life to the Jews. (laughs) This is actually a picture of death as they listen on to Jesus. So if he's the bread of life, how is it that this is what Jesus is talking about? Not only was it a picture of death, it was actually a picture of feasting on death. It's a weird picture like cannibalism Jesus is talking about. Not only is it offensive then, it's just plain sick. Like Jesus is a total weirdo. We all knew he was crazy, and now he just simply proves it. Sounds like what Jesus is saying is nuts, but not just that. If you think about what the law of Moses said, the law of Moses actually forbids the drinking of blood. Not only that, but you can't even eat the meat of animals while the blood is still in it. This is, this is religiously offensive. To drink the blood of Jesus and to eat his blood was, was a detestable thought. Besides that, the primary symbolism of blood in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, for that matter, is not life but death. When you remove the blood, it is to die. And so here Jesus talks about life through the paradigm of death. So the only thing they can do is come up with this question. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, it should be surprising to us if you are at all familiar with this passage and your Bibles. It should be surprising to us that they do not see what Jesus is talking about. It's striking that they have complete blindness to what Jesus is saying in light of what's happening all around them. And this is so key to our understanding of this passage. If they just considered the words of Jesus and thought about what's happening in the world around them without being offended by them, they would have understood a little bit more clearly about what Jesus was saying. So again, one of the key themes of the book of John, at least primarily in chapter 6, but we see it play out through the whole rest of the chapter, is this theme of Passover. Chapter 6, verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And not only was it happening, this is at the very same time that it's happening. And not only is it happening, no doubt they are preparing for it, even as Jesus is teaching. They're there in the synagogue. They're hearing, no doubt, passages about Passover being read. Scripture from the Old Testament being read about Passover. It is there in the temple that they are preparing to go and And to offer up sacrificial animals, this is something that is a part of their life right there in the present. They're clearly preparing to take their own sacrificial lamb and take the journey from Capernaum to Jerusalem and ultimately offer up that lamb to be slain there in the temple. Now, what is Passover? Well, this is where we need to do a little digging. So what I want you to do is hold your place here in John 6 and go back with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, and I want to just not take for granted this morning that you know what Passover is and means. And perhaps maybe being reminded of this in a fresh way, we'll see with greater clarity what Jesus is saying in John chapter 6. 
So Exodus chapter 12, back in Egypt, this is the context, the final plague. There were ten plagues. Egypt refused to obey God and let the people of God go. After 430 years of slavery, bondage there in Egypt, they finally relent, but they only relent after ten different plagues of judgment come against them. The final plague that was brought against them was the killing of the firstborn. And what God said to the people is that the angel of death is going to come and he's going to take the life of all the firstborn in Egypt. But he would deliver his people from death. He would deliver their firstborn, not because they were better, not because of who they were, but ultimately because of spreading the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And the angel would see the sign and he would pass over that doorpost, that home, and those lives would be spared. So that condition we see in verse one and following. So follow with me. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. By the way, very interesting that they're beginning the year. This is a brand new start for you, he says. It shall be the first month of the year for you. In other words, the guiding thing, the very thing that drives everything else you do is Passover. Verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. What kind of lamb is it to be? Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. In other words, this lamb had to be absolutely perfect and it had to be a male, only one year old. In essence, kind of a firstborn male. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. And then he says, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Everyone does it exactly the same time. Verse 7 says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of their houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And verse 9 says, Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with the legs and its inner parts. This is incredibly detailed. Verse 10, And you shall let none of it remain until the morning, and anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. And they are preparing to go out of the land of Egypt. And then he says, It is the Lord's Passover. And what will the Lord do? Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Egypt. So what's happening is God is going to pass through the land of Egypt. And you can just imagine 
the slaughter, the firstborn of every single family in the nation. And yet, here are the Israelites. Some estimates would put them at somewhere near 2 million people. And not one of them is touched. And it's not because of anything in them, but purely by the hand of God, recognizing the blood over the doorpost and passing over them because of this blood. What does he tell the people to do as a result of this action? Verse 14, This day shall be a memorial for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. If you read the end of this chapter, it tells us that that is exactly what happened. At midnight, the Lord struck the firstborn in the land of Egypt, the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. This is massive, massive tragedy. All because of sin. God judges this people. And yet, because of the blood of the Lamb, He passes over even the sins of His own people. And He's so serious about this that if they were to fail to put the blood over their doorpost, they too would suffer the same judgment. So Israel took this sacrifice, this feast, and continued to celebrate it all the way up until the time of Jesus. It changed some. No longer were they sacrificing in homes. They were sacrificing eventually in the tabernacle and ultimately in the temple courts. All doing it together for the sake of the Passover, but all with the same remembrance that this Passover lamb was the reason why God had passed over their sin and not judged the nation. So John says, verse 4 of chapter 6, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. They were preparing to go into the temple with their lamb. Many commentators would say that the the mess, the the blood, and and all of the the waste from all the sacrifices was, was a graphic scene there in the temple mount. The blood would be spilled for every sin offering. It was brutal. They were preparing to do what God had commanded them to do even from this day in Exodus. They knew the significance. And not only that, it was equally as barbaric as what Jesus was saying. Blood everywhere. And some might say, well, how could God do such a thing? That's crazy. We just sang about this. When you consider the holiness of God in light of human sinfulness, what other action do you expect from a holy God? God who is infinitely holy and worthy of all of our worship, and yet we as His creation have utterly rebelled against Him. What else would you expect God to do in judgment of human sin? And what Jesus says is unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you don't have any life in you. In the positive, He states it, whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks drinks My blood has eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. See, See the significance. It's almost as if you're standing there with Jesus and in the, on, with the backdrop of all of this happening at the temple, 
Jesus says, I've come and offered a new and better way. I have become your Passover lamb. Isn't this what John the Baptist announced from the very onset of this gospel that we saw? John chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John says, look, He's here, the new and better Lamb. The One who would take away all of our sin, not only the sins of Israel, but anyone who would put their trust in Jesus. He becomes the sin offering made available to the world. He was the One that it was all pointing to. So when John says, behold, he's saying, look, see Jesus, our great Passover Lamb. He is, as what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover Lamb. Just as the Old Testament Lamb had to be perfect, without spot and without blemish, Jesus Himself is morally perfect. He is without spot and without blemish. He has no sin in Him at all. 1 Peter 1 says, That His blood is precious because He is the Lamb who is without spot or blemish. Hebrews 7 describes Him as holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above all of the heavens. Jesus alone could ultimately fulfill this requirement of being our great Passover Lamb. In fact, Hebrews 9 tells us that the old sacrifices, they weren't even capable of forgiving sin. Jesus entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood or goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing our uh, uh, securing an eternal redemption. He says, for if the blood of goats or, and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 10 calls all of that the law, all of the sacrificial system, a shadow of what is good to come instead of the true form, the true realities. It can never, it can never ultimately make those perfect who draw near. Only the blood of Jesus And Jesus has entered into the holiest place. We have the blood of the Lamb spilled for us. Revelations 5 calls Him, by the way, John's vision calls Him the Lamb that was slain. This one between the four living creatures and among the elders, the Lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is the same lamb, Lamb that the elders sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What Jesus is saying to us, The only way your sins will ever be forgiven is if you receive my death, my body and my blood shed for you and you receive it for eternal life. Those who receive the death of Jesus are passed over. The penalty of sin will pass over you. Death passes over you and your sins will not be held against you. Praise God. This is the gospel. And how will this lamb die? will not be through the continual sacrifices on the temple mount. This lamb will not die in the court of the temple. This lamb will die on a wooden cross. 
No longer will there be sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice of animals, no matter no matter how many that we sacrifice, all of those things are imperfect. But Jesus dies for sinners on the cross once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Isn't that good news? And so he says, eat, drink, abide and receive. What does it mean to receive Jesus? What does it mean to receive his death? Well, herein lies the offense of the text. The greatest difference between the Old Testament sacrificial act and the New Testament sacrificial act. The Old Testament sacrificial act had no power to generate a human response. The law was incapable of changing the human heart. Jesus' sacrifice of his own life was not a human act to be to be performed. It's a divine act to be received. I'll say that to you again. Jesus' death on the cross is not a human act to be performed. It is a divine act to be received. It has no power, the Old Testament act that is, to change anyone, but Jesus changes everything when He dies for us. The crucifixion of the Son of God was also the way God chose to bring about the death of the flesh and being born again to eternal life. Jesus secures the ability for us to be redeemed by His own blood. So what does it mean then to receive Jesus? And this is where we find offense. These kinds of words from Jesus... Eat, drink, feed on, abide. They are not like the words that we often use when it comes to knowing Christ. Words like accept and invite. Accept Jesus into your heart. Invite Jesus to be your Savior. You simply don't accept a lamb that was slain to find a spot in your heart. You don't invite the lamb that was slain into your life. Jesus, the uncreated, eternal God, did not come for a place on your list. Jesus came to ransom our lives with His very blood. When you're in this spot, like they were in the wilderness, where you are desperate and hungry, you don't say to Jesus, hey, could you find me a table? It's not the hostess of a restaurant. You don't say to Jesus, I think I may need to make you a part of my life. You say to Jesus, I'm starving to death. Will you help me? When you are in a home in Egypt and you've been in bondage for 430 years. And you hear that God, who just done all, has just done all of these nine things that are crazy. <laughs> when you hear that God is about to kill the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, you don't go, well, I, I think I'll just put a sign outside my door. You, you do exactly what God said because of 
fear and standing and trembling before a holy God. And when you realize that the only hope you have of salvation is the blood of the Lamb slain for you, it's not an invite Jesus into your life. It's not a ask Him to come into your heart. It is to surrender to the, the Savior King. It is to say that without you I have no hope. Without you I have no life. It is not simply a superficial, shallow commitment to this King Jesus. It is to give everything that we are, surrender everything that we are to Christ because He's the only hope that we have. So what does it mean to receive Jesus and therefore to be saved? Consider the words of Christ. As we think about these words, eat, drink, feed on, Abide, there are three truths that seem to rise to the surface for me as we consider what it means to receive Christ. Number one, you must come to embrace the cross of Christ. You must come to embrace the cross of Christ. So in verse 53, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat, of the, fle- eat the flesh of the Son of God, Son of Man, drink His blood, you have no life in you. Unless you eat and drink, you have no life. Those are initial relationships with the flesh of Christ and the blood of Christ. There must be an initial taking and eating and taking and drinking. It, It would be hard for any reader in the decades that immediately follow there in the New Testament world. It would be incredibly hard after the cross of Jesus to see what Jesus had done for them, not to read this text and think supreme sacrifice. It would be incredibly hard for them not to still be able to envision the nails in his hands and the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood. It would be incredibly hard for them not to remember even to the point of tears the anguish that they all felt knowing that their Savior was being put to death. The fear and the anxiety in their hearts wondering if this Jesus could ever really save them. Wondering if maybe they've cast too much weight, they've put too much priority in Jesus. Maybe this is not what we thought it was. And their, their hearts to only be elated at the reality that God raised Him from the dead. To see Him again would be incredibly hard for them to devalue the reality of what it means to eat of the flesh of Christ and drink of His blood. It is a participation in His death. It is to embrace what he's done. It's not really to drink and to eat in a real sense, in a cannibalistic way. It is to embrace the reality of all that Christ has done in the cross. And Jesus says, unless you come to the cross, you don't have any light in you. You don't have any life in you. Unless you receive it as your own. Unless you receive what Christ has done personally, the truthfulness of the events that this actually happened and what it accomplished, that only through the blood of Christ, that only through the spilling of His blood on that cross, you receive eternal life. Unless you receive that personally, hear me, church. It's not your grandma doing it for you. It's not your mom or dad doing it for you. It's not your kids doing it for you. It's not the church doing it for you. Unless you personally come to the foot of the cross and surrender your life to Jesus, receive His spilled blood and His broken body for you, then you have no life in you. 
But praise God, Jesus says, if you do, if you come and receive fully ingesting, this is not just a partial, shallow commitment. It's not bumping shoulders with Jesus. This is ingesting all of who Jesus is. If you receive total commitment in the cross of Christ, Jesus says you have life. Readers of John in the first century and beyond would have immediately thought of the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. It was an event that, by the way, John 13, Jesus would inaugurate. We don't have the total picture of it there. You read Luke chapter 22 and you see this, this cup of the new covenant that is Jesus' blood. But the largest treatment of that time in the upper room is right here in John. Readers of John during the first century would have thought in these things that the bread being a symbol of Jesus' body and the cup being a symbol of Jesus' blood. But even as we think about those things, we need to be cautious because there's a danger for us to think that somehow the taking of the bread and the taking of the blood in this physical symbolism sense is saving, and it's not. Verse 63, Jesus Himself says that the flesh counts for nothing. It's not a receiving of physical elements to eat and to drink is the entrance into the new covenant. It is to fully embrace what Jesus did for you and therefore to be saved. It must happen. You must come and embrace the cross of Christ. Which means that you're turning from sin. The very thing that Jesus went to put to death. Your sin and your hell. And you're trusting totally in Christ. Embrace His work for you. Secondly, you must come to love the Gospel of Christ. You must come to love the Gospel of Christ. Verse 54, he says, whoever feeds on. Again, an interesting choice of words. He transitions from eats to feeds on. It's a more permanent, lasting kind of a response. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink as opposed to those Old Testament sacrifices, as opposed to the manna from heaven. All of those things shadows of what is real to come and that is Christ. And he says, feed on them. Nourish yourself on the life of Christ. Not just this initial yes to Jesus, but a day-by-day yes to Jesus. Do you hear me this morning? It's not that moment back 30 years ago when you trusted Jesus and you said, I'm going to say this prayer and I'm going to ask Jesus to save me. I'm going to give my life to Him. And then you just bank on that moment the rest of your life. It is a continual feeding on Jesus keeping loving Him, feeding on His flesh and His blood, namely, continuing to grow in the Gospel. It's the whole meaning of life in the Gospel of Christ is that He sets us free from sin in order that we might come to know and love Him above all else. And the deeper we go into the Gospel, the more, the more worshipful we become, the more obedient we become because we realize what Christ has done for us. Keep Feeding on it, learning it, living it. Every word that comes out of your mouth should reflect this gospel. Every thought of your mind should reflect this gospel. Every implication, every command that Christ gives us as a result of the gospel should be a part of your life. 
In other words, it is the crucified life. It is dying as Jesus died. For we have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives in us. It, by the way, needs to both deepen and broaden at the same time. What do I mean by that? You ought to every day come to a deeper realization of what Christ has done for you. And I want to just give testimony this morning. The more you learn of who God is and what He's done in order to accomplish your salvation, the more gratitude should be in your heart. Oh man, to see what God has done. But it should be more than just mere intellectual assent. That deepening of the gospel in your heart should drive you to a broadening of obedience in your life. Where everything in my life finds itself transformed by the gospel of Christ. Every single thing that I do. Everything from the, 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 the relationships that I have to the way that I live in the world. To, to my heart for evangelism. To my purity and thought and action. All of those things. Reflecting the holiness of Christ, the purity of the Lamb. Come to love the Gospel. And third, Jesus uses this eat and drink and then this feast on or feed on. But there's another word. It's the word abide. So you must come to fellowship with the person of Christ. If you get embracing the cross, and loving the gospel. And you never come to really fellowship with the person of Christ. You've missed it all. I hear so many give the excuse that Christianity is just a, a list of rules. <laughs> or it's a religious system. No, there are plenty of religious systems and lists of rules in the world. Amen? We don't need another one of those. We need a Savior. I don't want to know about Jesus. I don't want to know what Jesus said alone. I want to know Jesus. And what He says is, if you feed on My flesh and drink on My blood, verse 56, then, I, then my, blood abide, or, that my blood abides in Me and I in Him. Whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me and I in Him. This abiding... The Father sent me. I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. There is this connection to Jesus. Jesus insists that you must remain in him. That you must fellowship with him. That's why his flesh and his blood are really food and drink. Because we've got to keep eating from them. This remains or abides word is throughout the book of John. Defining not only relationships between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you can see those throughout from chapter 1 and so on, but also between believers in Christ. We see it in chapter 5. We've already seen it once. We'll see it again in chapter 8, chapter 15. This abiding in Jesus, Him being the vine and us being the branches. There is a mutual indwelling, a constant relationship with Christ, a divine fellowship. The picture is knowing Him. Walking with Him. Continuing with Him. It's the picture of what it means to receive Him. It's an opposite of our event-oriented conversion practices, isn't it? 
you were to ask a New Testament Christian, how do you know you're saved? They would not answer because I asked Jesus to come into my heart at seven years old and save me. And he did. They would answer because I've been walking with Jesus all of this time and he is the one who died for me and he's never failed me yet. That would be the answer of the New Testament Christian. I wonder if it would be yours. Those who remain or abide in Jesus have the abiding presence of Jesus in them. Not just merely those who've taken the elements of the supper. It's something that has changed them. They have the life of Christ. So the kind of eating and drinking and living in the Old Testament, the New Testament people had when Jesus was saying these words was much more like verse 58. That is the bread that came down from heaven. And then he contrasts what he's speaking of with what they have. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. That was the picture of the Old Testament life. They kept eating from the same bread. At the end of their life, they died. It was much like what Jesus would have said to these disciples who were casually following Him to listen to what He had to say. They would eat of the bread and they would die. And I would be concerned that it is the story of much of American Christianity. That we are eating from a bread a self-idolizing bread that does not satisfy. It would be an interesting tombstone inscription, wouldn't it? They ate and they died. I don't want that to be the story of my life. I don't want that to be the story of your life. And Jesus has given us the answer. Come and receive Him. Receive His death on the cross and receive eternal life. With every head bowed and every eye closed. This morning, the invitation is twofold. You're here this morning and you have never personally received Jesus. Never embraced the cross. You don't know what it means to feed on Him, to live in Him and fellowship with Him, to grow in the Gospel because you don't know Him. And the Bible says there's no life in you. Today God is calling you. Today God desires to save you if you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Whoever you are, whatever you're trusting in, you turn from that today. You turn from your sin, which is the very reason for His death. And you trust in Him today with everything that you are. In just a few moments, this altar is going to open. We're going to be singing. And I want to invite you to come. Right from where you'll be standing. Step out of the place where you're standing. Come down this aisle and say today, Pastor, today I want to follow Jesus. I want to trust in Jesus. Will you help me? And today I'll lead you. Believe the gospel and to follow Christ. So that's part one. You hang in there just a second. 
I want to talk to believers for a moment. Every time we partake of the Lord's table, it is a reminder that this is now our life. To continue to continue to eat, to drink, to fellowship with Christ. And this morning we have the opportunity to do that. You're a believer in this room. We're going to partake of the Lord's table. In just a few moments when we stand, I want to invite you to come. To my left and to my right, there are elements provided for you. And as we close our time of worship this morning, we're going to partake. We're going to remember the Lord's death. And remember that our life is now hidden in Christ. To serve Him. So even as we prepare to do that, you prepare your heart now. As the Lord calls us to reflect on our own lives, consider our life. Consider His death and partake in remembrance of Him. So in just a few moments when we stand, you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Jesus. Today, God is calling you. You need to respond. I want to invite you to come right where you're standing. Believers, I want to invite you to come and receive from the Lord's table. And then when we close, I'll call us to partake of these elements together. Would you stand with me all across this room? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your broken body that was broken for us. God, we know that you are our Passover lamb. There's nothing that we could offer up or do, but what you've already done for us is sufficient. Jesus, we thank you for the blood that was spilled for us. We ask this morning that you would remind us of the great price, the precious price that was paid for our redemption, that it is once and for all, that nothing else is required. Help us to believe and trust in you with all of our hearts. And if there is one here who's never trusted in Jesus, God, we pray today that they would come. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You come this morning. Receive from the Lord's table. Come. If you don't know Christ, come this morning. If you want to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you come. As Dylan sings. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ. Thank you.